Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host, Vince Piggott. Once again, I am joined by my glamorous co-host, Tilly Baden. Tilly, my friend, how the devil are you? How have things been since you were last aboard the good ship SWR? Hello, everyone. Um, Things have been good. Uh, I've had quite a busy week this week. We've been doing some training um, and preparing some more training for for upcoming events. So part of my job in the Mental Capacity Act team is to deliver training for our internal staff, but also external staff. So our health colleagues, our doctors, psychiatrists, um, care providers and other professionals. So we had a doctor's training event was it last night or the night before? A couple of nights nice. ago anyway. Um, and it was our first in-person training for ages. Um, and I was really excited. I love getting up on stage in a lecture theatre and actually being able to talk to people because it's not the same doing training on the screen. Of course not. Um, no, we, so we do monthly webinars um, that, we, that we do virtually for, for people. But... I don't feel like I get in the proper zone doing it virtually. Whereas when you're stood up in front of people, I feel like I'm just, yeah, actually able to connect to the audience and respond to people. Normally people put their cameras off in training and you get this wall of silence. So it felt really, really good to get back out there. So looking forward to some future in-person trainings, hopefully some more next year. Nice, impressive stuff. What's it like? training doctors because obviously I've been in positions where I've been training and coaching fellow social workers but not people from other professions how how, how does that work I was so nervous um, <laughs> that's what I was worried that's, I was thinking I'd be the same I'm glad I'm glad it's not just you yeah how, how is it yeah I mean to be fair they were a brilliant audience um yeah. And they brought some really interesting questions. We were, it was myself and a a few colleagues, and we were a little bit nervous about what Mm. questions they were going to ask and how much they'd put us on the spot. But actually, I like the pressure of it. Um, Makes you think on your feet. And um, they're they're experts in so many things. Um, But we're experts on the Mental Capacity Act and the law, because that's what we do day in, day out. Um, Mm. And they were really receptive. So it was all positive. What have you been up to this week? Um, I went to the boxing, normal boxing, not bare knuckle. I went to the normal boxing on Friday. So I went to that in person. Saturday, I watched the boxing. Tyson Fury was fighting Derek Chisora. I wish I hadn't have watched it. It was a sorry spectacle. And then Sunday it was the football. So it's been a weekend of working, writing, in, interspersed with sports. And then back to the grind, uh, Monday and Tuesday for work. And then I was in court. We're all back in person in the northeast of England in court. There was a directive given from our senior judge uh, about three months ago. Directive went on the Friday that as of Monday, everybody's back in court in person that first week was difficult because if you had things planned that you were going to be in court for obviously if you know you're in for a hearing you can kind of book in to do work either side of it if you know it's Mm. going to be remote because you don't have to factor in the travel but now that it's all back in court in person it isn't half a lot better it's it's like you said about you know but it's been a long time since you've done in-person training for court humans, it, I used to find it incredibly difficult 
personally and selfishly, not so much for me as a social worker and the expert witness of a mayor as an independent social worker, because I can I, I can give my evidence quite clearly and, and just as well uh, when I'm called and cross-examined, if anything, being sat at home doing it remotely is a bit easier for cross-examination yeah. because you can have yeah. all of your documents in front of you. You're in a bit more of a relaxed environment. You're not having to scrabble through the massive bundle and turn to page C5 because you can just control F on an electronic document and put up the exact words. But I have to be honest, Tilly, it was doing a massive disservice to the families we support in social work because no matter what reasons that parents end up in court potentially facing the children being adopted or placed into care or placed into a family member's care on a long-term basis, you cannot fail to understand the pressure and the difficulty of having to be in a courtroom. And the fact that for the majority of the last two years, you had for almost three years since the pandemic started, actually, you know, we're going back here. Coming up to three three years. Yeah, 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 it is. So for the majority of the last three years, should I say, you've had parents who faced final hearings in in my line of work, so final hearing being care proceedings that have gone to a final hearing and often contested about whether children should return to parental care or not. And they've had to do that over Zoom and Skype and on tablets and mobile phones and, and laptops. And it's, I've got to be honest, Tilly, I have been part of the system. There's no criticism because I understand why it had to be done, but it didn't half feel dehumanizing and, and, and you know, really, really harsh and really, it felt really brutal on the families that were having to go through that. So I am glad that we're all back in court in person. I really am. Yeah, I don't know what it's like in the southwest, but certainly for adult quarter protection cases, they're still all virtual oh, and yeah. just via telephone. Actually, they're not even yeah. via um, video link. A lot of hours were dialing. A lot of you know mm. the court dialing system where you get like yep. you are dialed into X seven two five nine nine. Yeah, all that. <laughs> I I was not off by heart the system. So yeah, a lot of hours were dialing as well, and it was just. Very, very difficult. And inevitably, there's some sort of technological issue as well. So mm. I, I'm glad. I was glad to be back in, in, in court in person today. Um, today's podcast, then, um, we are going to be talking about how to best prepare social work students for practice. And it's, it's been a busy week, to be honest, for social work news. There's a lot of news stories we could have picked up on. There was the news story that um, people who were supporting patients with Alzheimer's had to no longer ask them who the prime minister is as a basic memory test, because who knows, it's been changed that much in the past three or four months. There was quite a big news story about Arthur Labinjo Hughes's family who were supporting a campaign for social workers to wear body cams. But the one that I wanted to pick up on isn't necessarily a news story of run, but it was a, a well-commented-on opinion piece by one of our uh, columnists. So we have, a, we have about six columnists, I think, for Social Work News who write on a regular basis. There's a mix of people who do that under their own name, and there's a mix of people who do that anonymously. So obviously you, Tilly, me, 
Uh, Matt B, we write under our own names. Then you've got Social Work Sorted, who writes under a, a pseudonym. You've got Millie Glass, who writes under a pseudonym. You've got Maisie McDonald, who writes under a pseudonym. And you have other, they're the more regular ones, but you have other people that write now and again. And, and we also, most Sundays, uh, depending on what comes in via email, we have a social work confession piece. And I think all, every single, I was going to say almost all, but from memory, I think every single one of those has been either anonymous or simply using the first name. And, and I think it's, I mean, way beyond just what we've been doing for social work news people have been writing anonymously for social work publications for years and years i mean i've written anonymously for community care before there's i've written anonymously for the guardian before and and daily mail i've had something published in there before i can hear people screaming right now telling that i've dared I dared to have something published in the Daily Mail. I mean, I'm <laughs> screaming at you, to be perfectly honest, Fitz. I can't believe you stooped to, to the on, Daily right. Mail readers. But... I'm going to I'm gonna have to explain this, aren't I? For clarity. I think you do, yeah. I posted something on my Facebook page lambasting the portrayal of social workers in a British soap opera called EastEnders. It went viral. The Daily Mail contacted me and asked if they could publish it. So I wasn't rapping on the door of the Daily Mail saying, please let me write for you. But, and here's the important point, I did naturally, I got, I got a fair bit of criticism from people that follow me on social media for daring to write, to daring to agree to have something I'd already written published in it. But my point, Tilly, and I, and I believe it's a salient one, and I believe it still stands, is that if social workers are already going to write for the outlets that we think are sympathetic to us and that align with our values, we're never going to change anything. You know, what, no. what's the point in writing? Well, I don't say what's the point, there is point, but you know, you, you're not going to change many people's minds if you write a piece calling for societal action and change and you know, radical social work in The Guardian. People are going to mostly agree with that. If you write that in the Daily Mail, People are going to disagree with that, but it's going to get people talking and it's potentially going to get some changed views. So do you forgive me now, Tilly? Or am, or am I still persona non grata for daring to write for the mail? No, I think I think you're forgiven. You've explained it. Um, oh, thank you. And we've got to preach outside the echo chamber, don't we? So otherwise, we're just talking to the people that are already listening to our views. I feel like I was back in court there being cross-examined, by the way. Good job I'm back in the swing of things. <laughs> so um, one of our writers, anonymous writer, um, we have had, I don't want to criticise her, okay? We have had issues with some of her pieces before. Um, we have had to pull some of her pieces before on social work news. You may remember this, you may not, Tilly, but there was a piece... Wow, a, a long time ago, I think maybe two years ago or something, um, that, that our secret social worker wrote, um, where she basically had a go at every single man in social work. Do you recall that piece? Do you remember oh, I do time? recall that. Yes, I, I remember <laughs> seeing the um, the outrage that yeah. came from that. Yes. Yeah. So, so guys, if um, a lot of you probably didn't see that. It was pulled from the website not that long ago, not that long after being published. Um, I think the I think the gist of it, Teddy. I mean, you might have to correct me on this one. But I think the gist of it was something like, um, 
all men in social work are wrong something like that. Well, that was kind of the theme, wasn't it? Was there something like I the... Can't, all... I can't actually remember, but I remember it being a really contentious headline and yeah. it, it ruffled a few feathers. And, and probably rightly so. I mean, I certainly don't want to be writing off a, a huge chunk of our profession because of yeah. their gender. Yeah, it's and it, you know, and I am um, obviously being content editor. I, I decided to run that piece, even though being a man, I thought we're going to run that piece um, because it. I thought there was some. I thought I thought that there was some discussion point, and that's kind of my rule, you know. Is, is obviously people will know as well as doing this podcast. Um, I'm the content editor for Social Work News, so I, I have a fair say in what goes up and what doesn't. And as you know, Tilly, when people like yourself and, and Matt and our other writers contact me, um, I'll sometimes have a say and I'll say, well, I think the headline should be different and so on. But obviously I don't agree. I don't agree with everything that we write. Clearly, being being of the male persuasion, I didn't agree with a piece that essentially criticised all social workers who were male like me. But I put it up. But the reaction was that much that yeah it was 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 yeah we, we just pulled it down because it it had moved the debate on and it wasn't really it 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 wasn't really useful it wasn't really generating the kind of discussion that I thought it would and you know personally I didn't agree with it either but I don't think it's up to me to just publish things that I agree with I think it would make for a very boring platform and same as on the podcast Tilly you know you and I don't always agree on things and it would be very boring if we only picked things that we agreed on or our pet likes wouldn't it. Yeah, and it undermines the free speech. And I know we don't have free speech as they do in the United States, for example. Yes. We don't have a First Amendment right as they as our American friends do. But equally, I hate censorship. And if everyone always talks the same thing and mm. isn't allowed to publish anything out of a very narrow road. I think that's really dangerous. Um, yeah. And there are no things that get published um, on social work news that I might not necessarily agree with, but mm. I'm not going to then stop writing for the platform or boycott the platform because actually I, I'm really proud to be part of a, a, a diverse voices group of writers and and yes Maisie um has published quite a few things that I I don't agree with and the the thing that we're going to talk about tonight the article um I didn't agree with what she wrote but I'm I'm glad that it's out there because Mm -hmm. if it wasn't published and wasn't talked about then we're not opening ourselves up to debate challenge and change so what Tilly's mentioned there, guys, is 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 the article that I was getting to. So um, our secret social worker wrote an article, and the title is Lecturers Aren't Training People to Be Social Workers, They're Training People to Think As They Do. And again, it was my decision to publish that. I read it and I thought, I don't necessarily agree with it. You know, I've got friends that are lecturers. Um, I, I, I had a good experience at university i continue to have a good relationship with my university and and i generally think that universities are they could do better but i think that they're doing they're doing okay by our students and and there were a few things in that piece i was like oh it doesn't really sit that well with me but let's put it out there um the reaction tilly um was polarizing to say the least we had we had i would say about maybe 
25% of people agreed with it. 25% of people were saying, you know, well done for saying this. You know, yeah, I feel the same way. I do think students should, you know, be better prepared. And about 75% of people who commented, I think, really didn't like it. And I know you've seen some of that reaction and I've, I've, I've seen some of it. I didn't catch up on the weekend because I was busy, but I, I contacted some of the people that had uh, been in touch on Monday and sort of had a chat with them about it. So that was kind of the genesis for the day. And I wanted to have a discussion um, about that theme, really. Um, and I'll start off by asking you, Tilly, do you think that lecturers are training people how to think instead of training people how to be social workers? Do you agree with what was in that article? Um, I think lecturers have a really difficult job Mm. and I think there are some bad eggs out there who are are very out of touch with practice and have very narrow views um, on politics and the world and social work. But equally, there are so many fantastic lecturers out there who are teaching their students in a very, very limited space of t- and, and time because there, there's hardly any contact hours really um, within within degree programs. Um, and that's not the, the course programs faults. That's just the very nature of the way that university programs are, or universities are designed. Mm-hmm. But I, I always find it a really hard question to to think of of how can lecturers do better to prepare their students to be social workers because in that short time they're never going to be able to that they're they're damned as they do and damned as they don't no Mm -hmm. matter what they talk about you're never going to be prepared for frontline practice I don't feel prepared most of the time to be honest and I mean I'm, I'm many years in as are you and I'm sure that that there's many listeners out there that will feel the same way that we're often put into positions as social workers, mm. even after you've been qualified for many years, where you think, actually, I don't really know what I'm doing in this. I haven't come across this before. It's a completely new scenario because everyone is different. Every single person that you work with, every case has its different nuances. Um, yeah. And whilst you can have a, a foundation of of the laws, the theories, the models, methods and frameworks, you're never going to be able to finish university and know how to be a social worker yeah. because it's an ever-evolving process. And I think what the what universities do do well is is teaching people how to think critically mm. and being able to pr- problem solve and apply their knowledge and, and theories to any given situation. But in terms of doing that your day-to-day job, you're only going to learn that, well, you start learning it as a student on placement, but you're only going to learn that with practice experience. And that can take years. Of, well, it, you never stop learning, um, but certainly I think a minimum of three years in practice before you start feeling a little bit settled in terms of you know what you're doing um what are your thoughts um right oh god where do we begin here um <laughs> would i just reflect on that that article first 
So I think what was done in good spirit in that piece and the reason I, I chose to put it out there when it was sent my way, um, there, there was a truth. There was a truth to the fact that many students, myself included, when I was a student, do feel that university does not give you the skills you need for your placement, okay? So I think I think that heart of it was right. I think that in terms of the practical aspect of the job, university does not prepare you for that. Now, this is the kicker. This is where I radically differ from that view. I think it does not prepare you for that, but it can not prepare you for that. I think as you've said yourself, you know, lecturers have a very tight framework in terms of what has got to be taught to students. So they, they've got, you know, regulations which set out what students have to be taught. And lecturers have very little say over that. You know, individual lecturers have very little say over, you know, what is dictated as a standard that, you know, regulators say that social work students need to be taught. Lecturers also have little say, I wouldn't say very little, but they have little or, or, or less say over the placements that are coming forward. When I was a student 12 years ago, we struggled for statutory placements. 12 years on, it's exactly the same. Students cannot get the placements that they always want. Of course, you can put that down as your preference and the university can try but it is very, very difficult. And, and students are sometimes getting placed in, in to be blunt, till these substandard placements. It, it, it happened to me, one of my placements, I was placed in the primary school for half of it. So my first year social work master's placement, 100 days, we did 200 days back then. So my first 100 days was, um, was excellent. It was Bernardo's in Newcastle. I was a young father's project worker and I loved that role. And it gave me an insight into social work that was invaluable because I was supporting young fathers who had social work involvement in their life. So I saw social work involvement from the other side. I was going to child protection conferences to support the parents, not to be the social worker. And that gave me a hell of a good grounding. Second year placement initially started off at a primary school. I spent 50 days where I was working as an unpaid teaching assistant in a nursery class. Luckily, my practice educator managed to get me out of there for the last 50 days, and I was placed into a local authority safeguarding team. Without me forcing that on my practice educator and without her kind of doing that, she didn't have to do that for me. She kind of snuck me in there through the back door. I honestly don't think I'd be here today, Tilly, because I wouldn't have had the ability to answer the questions that were put to me in my first social work interview, and I wouldn't have been able to go straight into child protection like I did. So that's a long way of saying I agree with a few bits of that article, and that's kind of why I put it out there, because I agreed with some of it. I agreed with that idea that social workers aren't going into placement fully prepared by university, but there wasn't the nuance and the understanding to that, which is they aren't going there prepared because they can't be there prepared. We had somebody respond to the um, the opinion piece today, sent it in last night, but we published it this morning. 
Wednesday morning for those of you listening to this when it goes out. Um, we published it Wednesday morning. It came in Tuesday night. And, and the response sort of put into words kind of what I was thinking on, on a couple of points. And one of them was something like how, how on earth can university prepare students for every single workplace they could be going into, given every workplace has got different rules, different regulations, you know, different, even basic stuff like different times you clock in, different computer systems. I mean, I, I've already ever worked in child protection. I think I've used about six different case recording systems. And as you say, things are changing all the time, Tilly. So, yes, I, I think social workers could be better prepared, students could be better prepared, but I'm not sure how that could be realistically achieved in the time that lecturers have got with students. Can you? No, I, I agree. Um, I was really, really lucky with my student, with my placements when I was a student. So my first 100 days was with Action for Children in um, an early intervention setting. It sounds a little bit nice. like your Bernardo's one. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, good. But yeah, working with, with children under five and their, their families. And we were able to do the full assessment, support planning, intervention and review, kind of that whole system that social work system but at that early intervention level so that was that was really beneficial for me um and then my my second placement my 100 day placement was um in a forensic mental health team so I was really really lucky to get this placement because I was I was keen to work with adults and I'd made that clear even though my first job ended up being in child protection but um I got to be working in a secure unit, working with mental health people that were detained under the Mental Health Act who had committed the most heinous violent and sexual offences um, and working with people that had committed things like murder, serial killers. Um, heavy stuff, Tilly, heavy stuff. Yeah, horrendous sexual crimes, rape, paedophilia, paedophilia. Uh, um, all sorts. And I got to sort of dip in and out from the mental health units and then doing some in-reach within a prison. So I just had the most incredible learning experience and it, it tested me, uh, tested my, my values and my ability to work with people that had committed such offences. And I got to experience things like mental health tribunals and the court process and social care assessments within a health-based setting. So, and, and I also had the most incredible practice educators for both my placements and placement mm. supervisors. So I feel really, really privileged. But equally, I had friends on my course that had some horrendous placements um, like you said that, that were just not really anything about social work yeah. and I feel really strongly that that every single student should come out with having at least one statutory placement yes um I, I don't think that if you're you're going into practice as a local authority social worker which let's face it the majority of newly qualified social workers do. That's not yeah. to say that there aren't social work jobs in other sectors and, and not to take away any value from the voluntary sector. But the majority of social workers, certainly in the UK, are employed by statutory agencies. So to not be prepared 
from at least knowing what a statutory intervention is like and the bureaucracy of a local authority and a case recording system and some sort of assessments and reviews and signposting and some sort of safeguarding process Mm. if you don't have those experiences as a student on placement you're not going to be able to find a a job or if you do you'll be very lucky and I think that's where I I can't even say universities are failing students because it's not the university's fault they are no it's not they're they're trying the hardest I mean they are absolutely um and it's it's all down to actually social workers in practice putting yes. themselves forward yes, to be yes. placement supervisors. And that's where I feel really strongly that, that social workers should be going out of their way to support people coming into the, to the profession, because otherwise our profession is just not going to be able to sustain itself. We need to be supporting students and newly qualified to get that experience. Yeah, definitely. And look, I, I do... I do get the sense of frustration from employers and I do get the sense of frustration from practice educators such as in relation to how they are feeling in these situations. She wrote this because she was feeling frustrated, but I think the target's all wrong. I think the target is all wrong. To have that frustration at the student in the university, it's not it's 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 not that it's 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 a systemic issue and 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 like you said, Tilly, there has to be a responsibility. There has to be a responsibility from the government, from local authorities. If you if you okay, let's put it this way: if local authorities are complaining that social workers aren't coming and prepared, then why aren't they offering more statutory placements, Tilly? Surely that's the answer. I think that is one of the biggest answers to this and and not even just local authorities, but individual social workers, because you normally have to put yourself forward to, to be to say that you want to be a placement supervisor. Not everyone wants to be a practice educator. And I get that it's it's a lot more training. You have to go back to university and you've got to do um that there's quite a lot of additional work that comes with that. But being a placement supervisor is is such a rewarding job as well. I've loved having students and the students that I've supported, either myself directly or as a manager supporting the social workers in my team to have students, they've most of them have gone on and either ended up working for that very team or have gone on to be social workers for our local authority and are thriving as a result because if you put the effort in to giving students a good quality placement and you you take that it's time intensive um but it the rewards pay off it Mm -hmm. and it's short-sighted to feel that it's an effort having students or you've got to teach them how to put a case note on or make a phone call and and if you don't do that then they're not going to learn you you've got to give up that that time and it will reap its rewards later on and we'll have decent social workers coming through who do then have the skills to be effective social workers it's an interesting point you make there because another one of our anonymous uh, writers i've always got to be careful not to say the real names um, and I always get the two fake names mixed up. We've got Millie and Maisie, which is incredibly confusing. Millie 
Millie Glass. Millie Glass has written not that long ago, she wrote a piece for the magazine about how she gets called out by a student and that's a good thing. She she finds it refreshing that she has a student because it keeps her fresh because they're learning or relearning things that she sort of let slip and it keeps them on the toes. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I like that idea. Now, as I said earlier, the reason why I decided to publish that piece is because I, I do feel that universities can do better. And, and I would like to think that we well, we can all do better, Tilly. You know, we can do better on this podcast. I can do better in life. Hopefully, you probably can't, Tilly, given your social work's golden girl. But, you know. Oh, don't be silly. I am absolutely not. Says the woman who's been lecturing GPs yesterday. Anyway, right. Okay, Tilly. Social worker of the year nominee. Most of us can do better. All of us can do better. I'll include you in here, Tilly. If you, if all you want, of if us you, can do better. If you, exactly. want to, if you want to take your halo off for the time being, we can all do better. Now, some of the responses, well, a lot of the responses we got to this were kind of like saying, yeah, you know, yeah, universities maybe can do a bit better, but this is way off the mark. How do we think universities can improve? Now, realistically, because I do think those that, that notion that universities can send students onto the placement prepared for that placement that's that's you know belies the point of placements in the first place what can universities do better thinking about what you know of universities and also of your own experience what 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 can universities do better to prepare students for practice so I think there needs to be a really strong focus on skills days and workshops yes. and bringing in people who we've got lived experience of services, um, people that are carers or, or at people that are, are practicing social workers and other professions, invite them in on a regular basis and do workshops with the students. And no one likes role play because it makes us all feel uncomfortable, but there has got to be an element where students are set, are set up into some sort of safe environment where they can practice their communication skills, their questioning skills, assessment skills, all of those key things that make social work practice well form a lot of social work practice and I think the more doing that the students can do um, I think the better there's there's no point in having every single lecture where people are just sat there listening to someone talk at them from a powerpoint yes those those lectures have their place and they've got to be done there's certain things that need to be taught in a formal way but the way that our students learn best is by getting involved and testing things out trialing things in a safe environment before they get to the placement stage and they're given their first case to go off and and arrange a home visit and and do an assessment um, and work out what a person needs that that needs to be done that groundwork needs to be done before they go out on placement. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's why getting practicing social workers into universities is, is incredibly important. Um, I also I also like the idea put forward by the Care Review, the McAllister Care Review, which proposes that everyone involved in social work as a registered social worker has to spend a certain amount of time in direct practice every year. Clearly, 
you have many lecturers out there who are registered social workers but haven't done direct practice for years. Certainly on my master's course, not one of the lecturers was doing anything related to direct social work. And I don't think many lecturers are, Tilly. I mean, there might be some who do the occasional bits of independent work, but there's certainly no caseholding responsibility or, or sort of committed regular work. I think that would be a great help. I I understand, you know, where a lecturer is going to find that time from. You know, I, I know how hard lecturers work. One of my friends who's a lecturer, I mean, she's regularly up to the early hours of the morning, Mark and work, Tilly. You know, regularly, um, they use this system called Turnitin. Um, I used that when I was at university as well. It's obviously been around for a while, and she's always on about Turnitin, Turnitin, Turnitin. Um, lecturers do work incredibly hard, and I think but alongside that, a lot of them are, are writing, they're doing research, they're contributing to books and so on, they're doing additional training. So I, I understand that this suggestion that lecturers should spend time also in the workplace and on the job is going to be met with a disgruntled response to put it mildly but from a student perspective I do think that's necessary I, I do think it's important to be taught by people who still have a grounding in the reality of practice and who can pass on those skills that they're still using so those skills are sharp it might mean a larger pool of lecturers if you're going to have lectures that are in university two or three days a week and working two or three days a week obviously you'd need a larger pool of lecturers you might have to have more sort of associate lecturers who are coming in one day a week but from a university perspective i do think more has to be done and i think more probably will be done because i know this is being looked at by the care review yeah um I get that. I, I do. Um, I, I find it, certainly from where we're at now, I don't know how that could even begin to happen. I, I get that in an ideal world, you'd have people that are still practising social workers. But as you say, I'm, I don't know how they would have the time. And I I wouldn't want them to then give up less time to for, for doing things like research, which is equally important and yeah, I, I'm just not sure how it will work in practice. And whilst it's a good ideal to work towards, and I think it would be welcomed by quite a few lecturers. Um, and I know certainly, whilst I'm, I'm not a lecturer, but as a manager in a team that's where I'm not case holding, I'm not a frontline social worker in practice anymore, I still go out and do best interest assessments pretty much every week I go out and see someone because I know that I need to keep my hand in practice and I'm not going to stand up in front of people doing training or, or giving people advice and and guidance when I wouldn't be prepared to do that work myself and I think you can lose skills really quickly when you step away from case management and, and case holding so I, I I live by that rule, but I don't know how it could be regulated for. Now, Tilling, we have to address this next point, and it's a it's a serious one because a lot of the things we've just been talking about there, whether we agree with them or whether we don't agree with them, we've we've discussed a lot of potential criticism of university education. A lot of those criticisms that have been mentioned, either by ourselves as fair criticism or in that anonymous piece we published over the weekend, which you know, I think you and I would both agree had a fair bit of unfair criticism in there. 
a lot of those criticisms are addressed by fast track placements such as frontline and apprenticeship routes because if you train as a child protection social worker through frontline you are embedded permanently within a local authority you are actually you know, going to have a clear career pathway in terms of progression where you are placed directly within a set local authority equally if you are an apprentice social worker and go through that route you are again placed within local authority the same local authority now yes on the apprentice route you know you'll sometimes have two different placements a lot will do one adult and one children but you are still whether you are going through frontline fast track or whether you are going through the apprenticeship routes you are still getting far more work on the front line you are getting far more direct practice you are picking up far more practical skills and you are embedded within a statutory organization what do you think about that yeah i mean to be honest, I don't know that much about the frontline program, so I'm, I'm not going to comment on that because it's not my experience or, or expertise. But I do have a lot of experience with the degree apprenticeship. So I've had students in my team who have gone through it. I've had um, people in similar to the social work role, but what we call assessment support coordinators who are doing social work, but not as regulated professionals. They're doing a slightly lower well, it's not even mostly lower level because they're, they're case holding very similar to social workers. But then they go on, they do the apprenticeship and they come out brilliant social workers because they've got that frontline experience and they've done the job. And then they test whatever they're learning on place on um, through their lectures and seminars and their reading. They're testing it out as they go. Yes. And there's no gaps because um, I remember when I did my, well, I, I did my bachelor's um, degree in social work. I know you did your master's. So I had a three-year degree, and the first year is all about kind of getting some some basics under your belt, but you have one week of shadowing, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And then you had 100-day placements in your second year and then 100-day placement in your third year. But there was huge gaps between your placements, and you almost lose your skills a little bit when especially Mm. with the long summer holiday breaks although they weren't breaks people were working I certainly was that's Um, a hard degree it's it's uh, a social work degree isn't like a normal university degree time for fun and games is there no no exactly but there was far too much of you learn something in the classroom and then there's such a long gap between being able to then test that out as you go Whereas with the degree apprenticeship, they're doing bite-sized modules every single week. And then they're going on and they've got a mentor and a manager that's working with them alongside what they're learning. So one week they might be learning about, I don't know, something like attachment theory, for example. And then they're going into the, the job and having those conversations with their colleagues about it. They're looking at their caseload and starting to apply it straight away. Yes. And it's making whatever they're learning within those modules real and tangible. And I think that's probably one of the key ways how we can bridge that gap between theory and practice 
because in a traditional sense you're you, it's it's too heavy on the learning reading hearing about it before you get to test it out and put it in and by the time you get to that point where you can put it into practice there's so much that you've learned about that with the best will in the world you're there's going to be too many things too many directions um for your brain to comprehend so that's I'm a really really big fan of the degree apprenticeship and I I really encourage people to do it and I think that employers and the government should be channeling as much money and resources as they possibly can into making it a success. So how on earth can universities compete? How on earth well, can, if, if, we, if we're, you know, if we've created a two-tiered system where we're going to say those going on the apprenticeship routes and those going on the fast track routes will get paid more, well, if you go on the, the, the first, the frontline route, you don't come out of debt, you get university fees paid, you get a guaranteed job at the end of it. And as you've just succinctly described yourself there, Tilly, you know, the, the apprenticeship route and frontline is very much the same in terms of on-the-job practice and that more enmeshed, uh, that more symbiotic sort of enmeshed relationship between learning and practice how on earth can university education compete with that? Surely, surely, yes, again, I'm not going to go down the level of criticism that was, you know, labelled at universities in that opinion piece this weekend, but surely that's a better route, is it not? How can universities compete? Well, I don't know if they can compete. And there we go. And that's, that's the problem, that's, isn't it? That's that the is the problem. And I don't want to take things away from universities because I think they have their place. And certainly the postgraduate research centres and the, the, the people that are going on and contributing to the evidence base of our profession, those things within universities are so important. And I would really hate to lose those. Um, and I don't think we will lose those. I think they will they will continue. But in terms of getting people to qualify as social workers, I know which courses I would be recommending. I've said uh, this myself. Be, I've said this myself, Tilly. You know, yeah, I would have be been eligible. I would have been eligible for the frontline scheme if it was about when I uh, was looking to get into social work because I had a, a first class degree. I mean, I'm being a bit big headed there. I might, I probably wouldn't have passed the interview. Do you know what I mean? I would have been eligible for it on paper. <laughs> I'm not sure I would have got through the interview, but I would have been eligible for it. And I'm, and I'm quite open and honest. And I say to people, look, I would have applied. I mean, I, to be fair, I was lucky because. My social work master's was fully paid for. Um, I came out with no debt for my master's. I had a £6,000 a year bursary, which alongside working weekends, managing a hotel, saw me. Got to be honest, I was quite comfortable through my university education. I was working 36 hours a week, doing three 12-hour shifts on weekends, and I, I had you know £500 a week bursary to go by, £500 a month bursary to go by, just over £100 a week. So I I was doing all right, actually, to be honest. I, mean, I was living by myself. I had a self-fund, but compared to what some people go through, I was very lucky. But I, with my mindset, knowing that I already ever wanted to work in child protection, knowing that that would mean going directly into a local authority team, yes, I went through the university route, but how could I not objectively say that the apprentice route or the fast-track frontline route would have been better I would have been paid more, I would have had more experience, and I would have had a guaranteed job lined up at the end of it. 
we have got a two-tier system in effect, have we not? Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, and I mean, I wouldn't have, have qualified for it. I would have had to have, because I, I, I did my degree straight from school. Um, I think that was possibly a mistake of mine. I mean, it's worked out in the end, but I feel like I should have probably gone off and got some more life experience and I had to kind of learn as I go. Um, not that I don't feel that I was too naive when I joined as a social worker, but I certainly didn't have that length of life experience that a lot of students do have. Um, but I, I would, I think the degree apprenticeship gives you a really, really good stead for yeah. being a, a decent social worker. So I, I'm not going to be critic criticizing it at all. And it's such a strange system. It's so, it's, it, this is the thing with social work. It, a lot of the time it's getting chopped and changed and made up as it goes along so much. And it's such a new profession. And, you know, we don't really have a unified loud voice, you know, Basworth doesn't have as much members as it, as it would want. I mean, there's 100,000 registered social workers in Britain and 20,000 Basworth members. So only one in five people in social work are actually involved in our professional association. And you think, well, how many of them are actually active in it and how many are just using it for their indemnity insurance and doing it as an insurance policy on the off chance they ever get called up by the regulator or get in trouble and they have got that representation and and because of that we can we can see we can see one or two people's ideas or, or, or a new piece of legislation have massive changes and and this is what people feared what people feared when 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 you had the fast track system is that you would get a two-tiered system you would get people who were coming in with skills that universities simply couldn't compete with on the flip side of course you know there are things that universities will do better because they can perhaps offer that more rounded approach to social work not that specific driven you know that driven very sort of analytical and trained and drilled means of social work but it is it's something that does not sit well with me tilly that you can have people entering the workforce and having the same caseloads and being expected to undertake the same statutory duties that have had such wildly different experiences. We're not just talking about life experiences. We're not talking about their engagement with their university education and training. We are talking about two completely different, very bespoke routes into social work and yet expected to meet all exactly the same standards and do the same work and enact the same legislation with you know, the people we support at the end of it. There's something in that which doesn't sit well with me. It really doesn't. And I, I'm not blaming anyone. I don't really have an answer. It just, it seems unfair. Yeah, I agree. And we're just throwing our ideas out there, aren't we? Yeah. Neither of us are going to be able to change the world, but um, perhaps someone listening is in a, a more powerful position than we are. Tell you it's us. We're changing the world. It'll have to be. Well, we've, had this, we've had this conversation before. <laughs> you and I have often looked for a saviour. We'll have to do that ourselves. So I, I'm going to end on this question, the basic question, the whole premise of this episode. Tell me. Are universities properly preparing students for practice? Yes or no? No, but they can't. And I think that we've already said that very clearly throughout. Um, they're doing the best that they can with what they've got. Bingo. And I think I would agree with you on that. I think, I think yes, yes, there are things they could potentially do better, but there are things we could all do better. But 
I, I think we we, can, we cannot possibly lay the blame of this. I, I think universities are an easy target, to be honest. And I think social work lecturers are kind of a, a lazy target to blame for the state of social work because they're vocal. Social work lecturers are quite vocal. A lot of them are very active on Twitter. A lot of them are out there. A lot of them, you know, publicise stuff. So when you're looking for figures, you can kind of quite easily find an argument and quite easily, you know, look to blame social work lecturers because you know, we, we've all had them. Um, and, and, you know, the, 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 they are, a lot of them are kind of high-profile figures who are out there. But I, I, I really do think it's unfair. I think this needs to be a coordinated response and, as we discussed earlier, I think local authorities have to own this a bit more, not just own this a bit more by looking to train their own students and, you know, turn family support workers and, and project workers and contact workers into social workers via the apprenticeship routes and not just looking to get ready-made, high-flying, bright stars in via frontline. Um, I think they need to have better relationships with the universities because still the vast majority of our students, like you and I, Tilly, will come through that route. One final thing I'm going to ask. Um, whenever this is discussed, there's always a question pops out inevitably in this debate. Should social work education be split at the point of entry between children and adults? Nursing does it. Teaching does it. Would a bespoke adults and a bespoke children's social work degree enable social workers to enter the career better prepared for working with that client base? So I'm going to feel like a little bit of a hypocrite here because you've asked me this before and I said, no, they need to be joined up. You learn just you you learn the whole development throughout yeah. the life course. Um, but actually, I have to say recently I've kind of coming around to the idea of it. Oh, the, the lady is for turning. Uh, Tell ooh, me about I know. Um, but I am I am humble enough hopefully to to hold my hands up when I think I got it wrong originally been by saying that they need to stay as one because I think there's a lot of benefits actually to splitting it. Certainly around getting people to be legal compliant and yeah. legally literate and understanding the specific theories and models and methods that are linked with a certain client group. I think that there, there needs to be a share, some shared teaching. And yeah, because think... they're, they're the same value base is there for most of us, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. If, if you've got um, good analytical skills and good person-centered skills, then you can apply them regardless of the service users that you're working with. Yeah, yeah. But I think there should probably be some specialist modules um but then i wouldn't have of be in my position where i am now because i started as in children's and then switched to adults so mm. there needs to be a way to be able to switch because i think that's really valuable i've known yeah, there could so be a refresher there could be yeah. a professional module or something you could do, just like how you yeah. do your progression or your practice educators. Tilly, I fully agree with you. As you know, this is something I've been calling for for years and years. And, and I think, actually, you know, let's go back. Uh, you know, I was saying there isn't much more universities could do. Yes, they can't do that themselves. That has to be bought in as a, as a national policy. If the numbers are there and if the resources are there, I think that, I think that could address these problems. I, I really do. I think having a bespoke career path from the point of entry at university 
would, it might even assuage our grumpy, pessimistic, secret social worker, Tilly. It might even thaw her cold heart if that was to be proposed. Maybe it would. <laughs> On that note, everybody, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm definitely, I'm definitely... Um, she will be listening and I'm, I'm going to get in trouble here. Right. On that note, uh, Tilly, thank you ever so much for your time uh, on the show today. Very interesting debate. Um, as always, guys, if you want to leave us a review, just do that on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you use. Um, also, if you've got any comments, anything you want to say about the show, do drop us a message. You can find Tilly and myself on Twitter and you can also hop on to any of the social work world or social work news platforms. Send us a direct message. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.